There we go. I think we had a little error with my um, my intro music is usually overlaid over the top of our graphic, but it wasn't. So you missed out on music today. Sorry about that. But welcome to the Creative Psychotherapist podcast. We're just going to roll with mistakes and, you know, it's all good. Um, and today I am very excited to have with me uh, Dr. Tom Murray, who is the author of Making Nice with Naughty, his latest book. And I'm going to share a little bit more about Tom. He is a distinguished figure in the field of intimate relationships and sexuality. He's been featured in various outlets, including the Washington Post, Huffington Post, and the Daily Mail. His expertise extends across radio, TV, and podcasts, including notable appearances on The Practice of Being Seen and Shrink Wrap Radio. Widely recognized as a dynamic presenter, he has, a sh he has shared his insights at local, regional, and national conferences, delving into a diverse range of mental health and relationship topics. Dr. Murray has imparted knowledge at esteemed institutions such as UNC Greensboro, Adler University, and Northwestern University's Family Institute. In his clinical practice, Dr. Murray employs a straightforward and no-nonsense approach, seamlessly blending Buddhist philosophy, the work of Byron Katie, and conventional methods. This integrative style has proven transformative, guiding individuals to silence the inner chatter that impedes happiness, intimacy, and the cultivation of fulfilling sexual relationships. A captivating author, Dr. Murray explores the intricate dynamics of self-control and its impact on one's sex life. His debut book, Making Nice with Naughty, stands as the 2023 Global Ebook Silver Medal Award winner for Best in Relationships and Sexuality Nonfiction. Thanks so much for being here. You're so welcome. And you forgot to mention I was one of your students. <laughs> Well, <laughs> that's true. We met you. You were in um, the supervision training that Amy and I do at, for the practice. I was a couple of years ago now, I think. Yeah, yeah. I think it was during the before times. Yeah. <laughs> it was, we were maybe in the height of COVID. Maybe. It, 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 it had to have been right, right before or right at the beginning. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. So welcome. Thanks so much for being willing to talk with me. I would love to start off by kind of asking some scope of practice questions that pertain to your niche. What's the difference between um, somebody who is a sex therapist and somebody who is a clinical sexologist? Oh my gosh, what a great question. Yeah. So uh, by definition, a sex therapist is a mental health professional who has a specialization in human sexuality and uh, its impact on individuals and relationships. A sexologist is uh, uh, someone who studies human sexuality and it may be applied or uh, uh, academic uh, uh, and, and so it doesn't necessarily denote a clinician. Um, okay. And so, for example, I have a, a consulting practice where I uh, am a forensic sexologist, right? Uh, and that just simply means that I apply the knowledge of human sexuality to forensic settings, such as, you know, someone uh, 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 has been accused of of sex offending uh, mm -hmm. and need a, an evaluation. And then I write up a report and, and provide that to their attorney or to the judge. Um, but I am not a treating, I'm, I don't treat the person's uh, out of control sexual behavior. Gotcha. Right? So, and and uh, there are just emerging in the US uh, sexology uh, training programs that are just explicit, uh, specifically 
uh, uh, sexology related. Uh, for example, uh, the, um, the Modern Sex Therapy Institute uh, there in, I think, Fort Lauderdale, uh, they have now a PhD in um, uh, sexology uh, that uh, one can get in addition to their sex therapy uh, certification. Gotcha. Okay. That, so it sounds like a lot of extra training, but it doesn't necessarily mean that you're providing sex therapy, but it could, right? Um, if you're, it, right. If someone is identifying as a sex therapist, then uh, they, particularly if they are certified through ASEC, the American Association for Sex uh, sex educators, couples and therapists, I'm sorry, counselors and therapists, then uh, they, by definition, to be a certified sex therapist, they have to have a, a, a graduate degree or postgraduate degree in some mental health discipline mm -hmm. uh, where they're licensed as a mental health provider versus sexology can be just purely academic. Mm -hmm. So, for those of us that are in private practice, which I think are bulk of listeners, when we have somebody come in and one of their primary presenting concerns is related to intimacy and sexuality, their sexual partnerships, why would it be important for us to refer to somebody who is a sex therapist uh, versus trying to address and assist them with that, them, you know, with their own training. Yeah, well, you know, you're in Florida, and Florida is rather unique uh, uh, around this area. Florida is the only state in the union that um, has a specific statutes related to uh, one calling themselves a sex therapist. Uh, no other state has codified that. Isn't uh, that weird that Florida would, would would be the one to do that of all the states? Yeah, I, I you know uh, it's it's a a question or it's a background or a history I have no knowledge of, but I, a part of me is really curious to 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 kind of dig into who sponsored that bill, what was the rationale for, it, what was the debate about it, because uh, uh, it is uh, rather you know, it's so unusual. Mm -hmm. um, Florida also uh, has some stipulations around who can call themselves a hypnotherapist too, if, I, if I'm if i not mistaken. Yes, that's true. Mm -hmm. um, and, and whereas in North Carolina, where I'm located, anybody can call themselves a hypnotist. Oh. Right? You don't even have to have training. I mean, it's so ridiculous. Um, so back to your, your question, um, Florida is also unique in that uh, uh, if you are, gosh, I should know the answer to this. I know it, uh, uh, specifically to be a marriage and family therapist, you have to have a class in human sexuality or sex therapy. I can't remember if that's part of the, the mental health counselor curriculum, but I know that it's part of the marriage and family. Mm -hmm. And so already, let's be honest, already, Florida trained clinicians are going to have more knowledge and experience or knowledge than most therapists outside of Florida. That's fascinating. I would have never guessed that at all. Yeah, yeah. So, um, and then we, so, so if there is, um, a, a, there's a, what's called the Plicit model uh, within sex therapy. And PLICIT is an acronym that I'm, I'm going to screw up and uh, 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 my colleagues are going to think I'm a total uh, uh, sham for not remembering this. But the P in, in PLICIT, you know, stands for permission. Um, the LL stands for um, limited, or the LI stands for limited information. So depending on your level of training, education, and experience, you can go increasingly more um, in depth with the level of intervention, where the T in the plicit model is therapy, right? So mm. some people, we just don't, the most therapists may not have the, the direct experience in alleviating or, or providing behavioral uh, uh, management 
interventions around erectile dysfunction, premature or rapid ejaculation, what was historically premature ejaculation, um, uh, vaginismus, dyspareunia, these kinds of, of sexual sexuality concerns that mm-hmm. most therapists aren't going to encounter unless they have a niche practice around sex and sexuality. Mm-hmm. And that therefore is why we it benefits us to refer to somebody who has that expertise and can really aid the client with resolving whatever's going on there. Yes. Yeah. And to to add uh, uh, to that, as a sex therapist, I've had a number of clients who have a primary therapist Mm. that they come to me because they want to talk about things that they don't feel comfortable talking to their primary therapist about. Because that is a, that for them, that is a sacred relationship. Mm-hmm. When people come to a sex therapist, they're not looking for a long-term therapeutic relationship. They're looking for their erection, their orgasm, their you know resolution of trauma in order to have meaningful and fulfilling sex. So they're not, it, 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 it fits my temperament because it tends to be short-term oriented. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. And they, for whatever reason, feel like they want to protect that relationship uh, from those kinds of conversations. And quite frankly, a lot of therapists are just uncomfortable talking about sex and sexuality. And so they may have, by virtue of not asking their client about sex and mm-hmm. sexuality, may have inadvertently given the impression that that isn't a topic that's off limits. I hear that. And I have definitely heard that from people that I've supervised, that there is discomfort in having those conversations. Um, And that makes sense. If we feel uncomfortable, the client's going to feel uncomfortable to talk about it as well. Um, Yeah. I'm glad that you're bringing up that it, that there's a, there's an ability to collaborate because I think it goes against this myth that if you're working with one therapist, you can only work with one therapist. Yes. Oh, gosh. <laughs> Don't get me started. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Like <laughs> this is a this is a thing everywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, it's not unethical to do that. We we have our specific goals that we're working on and we can work collaboratively to provide better care than if we're trying to address all the things which we're not necessarily suited to address. Yes, and that no more truer is that than with sex therapy because the bulk of the work that I do is almost strictly educational. Mm-hmm. For example, I had a, a, a couple this past week, a new couple. He, um, uh, just was frustrated that when he wanted to have sex, that his wife just wasn't quickly on board, that she wanted a massage, she wanted to wind down, she wanted, she she, she had this kind of uh, uh, preference to get her juices going literally and figuratively that her husband didn't quite understand because if he has an erection, why wouldn't she want to just have sex because sex is fun, right? And for her, uh, because of that, she has experienced pain during Mm -hmm. penetration, which is her body saying, I'm not ready. Right. I'm not ready. And so my job in that moment was to educate this this grown-ass man (laughs) what, uh, uh, how his body is different than her body and that there are different types of desire, right? There's not just one type there. We, we collectively think about three types, spontaneous, responsive, and contextual. And that men by and large tend to have more of this spontaneous desire, but most women mm-hmm. don't have spontaneous desire. And most women have what's called contextual desire. So you could see he was having light bulb moments <laughs> right. And, and then it, he began to realize, oh, it's not personal. 
Ah, so he could, his, his ego could be like, oh, it's okay. <laughs> yes, it's okay. And, 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 and he started listening to my book. Uh, uh, had he gotten further along, he would have read this. <laughs> but, uh, uh, you know, it's a beginning, I think, for, for uh, him, as for most people. In fact, um, I routinely ask clients, when's the last time you read a nonfiction book about sex? That's an excellent question. And the most I... common answer is? <laughs> never? Never. <laughs> never. I've never read. And, and what I educate my clients is that, uh, uh, you know, you've spent thousands of dollars on your educational development, thousands of dollars on your physical development, spiritual development, etc., but nothing on your sexual development and who you are when you're, you know, when you're in your late teens uh, as a sexual being is different than in your 20s, 30s, 40s, 50s, 60s. And you have to routinely update your sexual knowledge, but not only just your sexual knowledge, mm -hmm. but also your, the knowledge about understanding your partner's sexuality, particularly in heterosexual relationships. If I'm going to, as a male, if I'm going to have sex with a female partner, I benefit and they benefit if I spend some time educating myself about what is important to know about this partner at this point in their development mm -hmm. versus relying solely on information that's 10, 20 years old. Yeah, that makes so much sense. Yeah. So I'm wondering, at what point did you know, okay, I've been doing this a while, I really need to um, synthesize everything that I know and put it into a book so that people that maybe can't have, don't have the means to access me personally for therapy can have access to all this information in the book that I wrote. Yeah. Great, great, great question. Um, First, I'll say I had the title in my head long before I had the book in my head. Isn't it funny how that happens? <laughs> yeah. Making nice with naughty for whatever reason, there was just something about that, that just really, I, I, I felt compelled to do something, uh, uh with that. And, um, uh, uh, at some point, I had also been exposed to radically open dialectical behavior therapy. Mm -hmm. And um, that is a, a form of, uh, that is a treatment specifically designed for people who are over-controlled or who have too much self-control. Okay. And, and that being a temper, temperament, the over-controlled temperament versus traditional DBT. Mm -hmm. Marshall Linehan's uh, therapy was uh, is specifically designed for people who are under control, thinking like borderline personality disorder, for example. And so I, I, I was educating myself about that and uh, uh, realizing that a significant portion of the clients that I was seeing, their sexual issues was, was uh, intimately tied to this over-controlled temperament, like uh, someone who can't, is not orgasmic. Uh, uh, well, or an orgasm by definition is the total loss of control. Mm -hmm. And so if someone's not orgasmic, what about their need for control? And some of the control can be simply, I'm not allowed to touch my clitoris. Mm. I can't, I have a, there's a rule somewhere that, uh, you know, I, uh, masturbating is just unacceptable. I can't touch my clitoris. So then they think, oh, I should only have an orgasm through penetration. Yeah. Well, only 12 to 15% of vulva owners can have an <laughs> orgasm through penetration alone. Oh, that's crazy. Yeah. And so that's you like so small. Such, but if you look at porn, and I'm not anti porn, right? Uh, you would think everybody is orgasmic with penetration. 
Right. Well, that's a, there's, there's so many myths that are spread about sex through porn. <laughs> yeah. It's so true. So true. So, uh, uh, in September of 2020, during the height of the pandemic, I was working with a couple, a, a, a younger couple, they were in their thirties and they had kids. And, uh, I had this light bulb moment. I bet I could predict with considerable accuracy, the nature of this couple's sex life by asking just one question. And I just had met them. Maybe I'm 10 minutes into the session. And so I said to them, or asked them, are you a be careful parent? Be careful, be careful, be careful. Or are you a have fun parent? Mm. And of course they said they were be careful parents. And, and it became this kind of test of my couples. Are you a be careful parent or have a have fun parent? And those couples who were be careful parents, whether it's one or both, were more likely to have sex and intimacy issues. Mm, that's so fascinating. Yeah, and so my then how I began to integrate RODBT uh, in addition to uh, um, uh, rational emotive behavior therapy acceptance and commitment therapy, and uh, the work of Byron Katie, I've just integrated those different models, uh, as well as contemplative or Buddhist psychology, and and developed a method of of helping clients to turn down the volume on their over-controlled temperament, not that they're going to ever be under-controlled, uh, there's not enough drugs or therapy in the world that's going to make me under-controlled. I'm an over-controlled person. But I can learn how to turn down the volume on my mm-hmm. over-controlledness so that I can have uh, 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 what, what um, Tom Lynch, the developer of RODBT, says, uh, uh, cultivating a life worth sharing. Ah, it's different from Linehan's cultivating a life worth living. Yes. Yes. worth sharing. That's sure. really powerful. Yes. Yes. For a lot of OC folks, you know, uh, they uh, are highly independent, reliable, dependable. They have strong opinions about how the world should be, must be, and has to be. Uh, they're the ones that go behind their partner to rearrange the dishwasher because it wasn't quote done right. Uh, and, and as a, as a consequence, uh, Many OC people have the thought of it's just better to live alone. <laughs> you know, why why bother with the needing to accommodate someone else, right? So, but what we know about mental health is as social creatures, we don't live, we don't do well in isolation. No. And so helping OC people cultivate a life worth sharing as a as a, a pathway, if you will, to uh, better uh, psychological and emotional health. I love that. Um, that's really powerful. Yeah. So how long is the book? Uh, it is uh, 240 pages, I think, around that. And so for readers, I'm assuming, and correct me if I'm wrong, I'm assuming that you wrote it primarily for clients and not necessarily for other therapists, but would it be beneficial for other therapists as well? It would be, and here's one of the reasons. Therapists are overrepresented as OCs compared to the general population. I'm not surprised to hear you say that at all. (laughs) Yeah, and so so we, as as a profession, we can, if you think about it, it makes perfect sense. You know, being OC is a superpower, right? It's a superpower. The world out there loves OCs, right? Mm-hmm. Because we're the ones that get stuff done. It's but true. If, if the OC temperament is going to become a problem for anyone, where does it tend to show up as a problem? it's within our sex and intimate relationships. Mm-hmm. Because uh, one of the reasons is that OCs do not like vulnerability. We, we uh, uh, 
we we fetishize certainty and and vulnerability infuses too much uncertainty mm-hmm. and so we we are the kinds of people that in the world out there if someone were to ask us how are you doing how are you our favorite f word is fine fine <laughs> yeah fine. or if we are agitated if we are kind of irritable and someone says how you're doing your our other favorite f word is frustrated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know this is frustrating you're so frustrating you know um and 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 so and again otherwise the world out there would just see our relatively neutral face mm-hmm. in fact i remember when i was at university of florida uh, uh, my advisor uh, was uh, uh, Peter Sherrard, and uh, uh, he said one time, he goes, you know, when I watch your videos, uh, you have perfected the poker face. And he said, the problem with that is when your clients are giving you all of this information, they are getting no sense of what you're doing with it. Mm-hmm. And uh, uh, and so I appreciated that feedback. And as many OCs, we tend to we tend to adopt a neutral face uh, just by default. Um, and, uh, and so sometimes I will listen with such intensity that my energy is going into the listening, and I forget to look at my face. And I once had a patient say to me. Uh, you know, when I look at you, I get this image in my head that at any moment, you're going to pull a knife from behind your back and eviscerate me. Oh. And, you know, uh, for whatever reason, the only psychoanalytic response I had to that was, so you're, you're afraid I might make you spill your guts. But what he was responding to was that, that neutral face from an evolutionary perspective is experienced as threatening. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Right. And so one of the core deficits of OC people is poor social signaling that sometimes without our intention, we tend to signal a message that isn't how we feel in the inside. Mm-hmm. And so we have to be much more intentional about raising our eyebrows, having a smile on our face, because our default programming is a much more neutral face and that neutral face is experienced as threatening. Fascinating. Now I'm wondering how this level of body language plays into intimacy. Like just amazing miscues all over the place, it sounds like. Oh yeah, my partner is... Uh, on the regular, asking me if I'm okay. <laughs> you okay? Yeah. I'm fine. I'm fine. <laughs> yeah. I remember even, you know, again, in graduate school, walking across campus and and people would say, you know, I saw you walking across campus. You look angry. I've had and- that. <laughs> I've had that. And I don't feel like I'm an angry person. No! Or that I'm like projecting that at all. But people are like, you're really scary. You're really intimidating. (laughs) Like me, I'm intimidating. I don't think I'm intimidating. That's because of that neutral, that neutral uh, look. It's just experienced as intimidation. Yep. Absolutely. Well, welcome. You must be on the OC. You're on the OC train. (laughs) (laughs) It's interesting. I was thinking about it when you were like, um, you know, the OC person is the one that rearranges their partner's uh, arrangement in the dishwasher. And I was like, oh, my husband. Yeah, he oh, definitely it, like does that. I don't care. Um, just get him in there and run the thing. Uh, but but there are other ways that it definitely plays out for me. Yeah. I, I definitely am the doer. I'm the I'm going to get it done person. I'll wait. And if things don't happen, then I'll make it happen. Um, So there, there are parts of that that definitely play into my personality for sure. Mm. And I, I know just in 
in listening to you, I was like, I've definitely had clients call me out before for the look on my face and like having that be a misread. Um, and yeah, but I never thought I didn't know this information until talking with you now. Yeah. Well, and, and uh, my book is the first and, and still, I believe the only book that applies RODBT to, for the general audience. Mm. Right. So you like DBT, there are a lot of DBT books out there. Um, but my book is the uh, first and I believe still only general audience book. And I just uh, 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 wrote it for uh, sex and sexuality because that's my my area of interest. Uh, I had a, a, a colleague tell me this morning that her husband read it. And she came into the room and he was just crying you know wow. i'm just resonating with uh uh seeing his own thoughts his own words that he has spoken being mm -hmm. reflected back to him in my case examples uh and, and and to have a a a positive frame because i see the oc as positive yeah it's not a it's not a disease disorder deficiency but it's an it's a superpower but in certain contexts it can be a liability and just simply understanding that is is really the purpose of my book is to help people see that that um this loneliness that they feel because that mm -hmm. is a common common complaint of ocs that, that they feel lonely well uh, uh there's a reason for that we're, we're poor social signalers. We don't like vulnerability. We don't tolerate uncertainty very well, right? We have our, our, we have strong opinions about how the world should be, must be, and has to be. That's not very accommodating to other people. And so we, we may find ourselves both pulling away and other people pulling away from us. Yeah. Yeah. So true. Um, it's really an exercise in cognitive flexibility on so many levels there. And if we're not willing to be vulnerable, how do we, how do we create intimacy in our relationships without that willingness to be vulnerable? If we're pulling back, well, the other person is going to be like, well, I'm not going to put my stuff out on the table if you're holding back, you know? Right. That's right. And, and a lot of OCs, uh, 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 do not like to feel awkward. Mm. And so they've internalized that if this thing, whatever it is, makes me feel awkward, feeling awkward is bad, and I don't want to feel bad, therefore I'm not going to do this thing. Mm -hmm. And yet, uh, what I try to, to train, if you will, uh, my clients is to uh, see awkward as the sign that they're moving in the right direction. I love that. Right. That this is good. If you're doing something and you feel awkward, then you are showing up in a vulnerable way. You're showing up in a new way. And people tend to like people who show up less perfect. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and OCs, OCs, you know, we, we like to fetishize perfection. And so by showing up less perfect, we can appear more likable. That's, that's interesting. I've been, I used to feel like I would be paralyzed by perfectionistic tendencies, right? Like if I didn't have it just right, then I wouldn't put it out and I would hold on to things. And then I wouldn't take action in areas of my life that yes. I really wanted to. And it was such a disservice to myself. And so I've had to work really hard on adopting the mindset of progress, not perfection. Mm. And showing up and if somebody's like you look stupid look at all these mistakes and your stuff i'm like perfect that's great i'm glad that it's out there and that you found those mistakes for me and now i can correct them yeah because i would rather be moving forward than be stuck 
well oh that's yes 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 and and how wonderful it is that you've made that transition where where you were uh, no longer um being encumbered by perfection but rather uh, uh having goal being goal oriented to the degree of i i would rather uh, uh move forward than wait until i felt perfect in moving forward right because when are we ever going to feel perfect and 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 in the book i talk about there are four types of sexual perfectionism oh that uh uh most of the clients who are OCs who have sexual issues, their issues will be one of these four or, more, or one or more of the four. The first one is I have to be sexually perfect. I have mm -hmm. to have an erection every time I want an erection. I have to have an orgasm every time I want an orgasm. I have to uh, uh, be pain, uh, I have to, uh, 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 always have total discomfort, right? Mm -hmm. uh, before I do uh, uh, anything, right? And, and so that can, that can stop progress. Yeah. The, the next one is my partner has to be sexually perfect. So my partner has to have an erection. My partner has to be uh, uh, turned on by me. My partner has to have an orgasm. My partner has to have a, a, a particular uh, body uh, look or, or whatever it is. The third is, I think my partner thinks I have to be sexually perfect. Ooh, right? what a trap. What a trap. So I might think, you know, my partner, do they think I'm a good enough lover? Are they having a good enough time? Uh, uh, or, or are they worried about whether I'm having a good enough time? Uh, and then lastly is um, uh, society expects me to be sexually perfect. So think of all the cultural programming that uh, particularly women have, mm -hmm. have had to endure uh, or uh, 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 intergenerational programming. Mm -hmm. These are all the ways in which sexual perfectionism can show up. Uh, Speaking of the latter in particular, the whole purity movement of the 90s and, and early 2000s had really, for a lot of the clients that I see who've been a, a part of that and developed uh, sexual issues, that I have that society expects me or God expects me to mm -hmm. be sexually perfect uh, has a, a profound deleterious effect on people's ability to experience meaningful and fulfilling uh, intimacy. Wow. I, I am blown away. I knew none of this before talking to you today. Um, but that, that's not my expertise um, at all. It's not the area that I focus in. But I feel like I've learned so much just about me personally. And <laughs> a short period of time talking to you, I was like, Oh, wow. Yeah, I've definitely had that thought before. Um, you know, and it's so uh, relatable. Why aren't we talking about, why don't we talk about uh, sexuality and intimacy and how important understanding some of these really accessible pieces of information that if you have that knowledge can just open up and let yes. you breathe so much easier and relax and go, okay, like, it's not just me here that this is just an, a, a typical part of the experience. Why aren't we having more of these types of, you know, conversations about sex just in our general society? Maybe that's too big of a question, but I'm going to put it out there anyway. <laughs> Go home. Um, well, it's multifactorial, as you can imagine, but certainly it's not helped by this um, this uh, push within uh, our, our, our local and state uh, and federal governments that make people believe sex education is a is just a, 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 a should be only left to uh, parents, but that implies that they have solid education uh, in the first place. Um, that we tend to, in our society, put our, our make moral 
morality uh, a part of the sex education experience where uh, the Scandinavians, for example, their whole premise is more sex leads to less sex. Meaning <laughs> that by providing more sex education from mm -hmm. elementary and uh, on, that uh, uh, people are going to be less likely to, or, or more likely to wait to have their first sexual experience, which bears out in their in their research. So that's certainly uh, uh, one piece. Is kind of the this anti-sexuality mm -hmm. agenda that seems to be pervasive across uh, uh, our country. Um, to give you an example, in England, there's a show called Naked Attraction, and it's available Ooh. now on on uh, uh, HBO Max here in the US. When it came to the US, there was a flurry. It was a scandal. I can only imagine. But this show <laughs> is on prime time on Channel 4 in, in the UK. And, and what the show is, is uh, you start out with six contestants and they're all in pods. And you have a, a person who's looking for a date. And what happens is that uh, uh, during the show, the pod raises and it stops at the waistline and the person is completely nude from the waist down. And then the, they, there's someone's eliminated and then it goes up to their neck. Someone else is eliminated up to their head. Someone else is eliminated. Uh, and then they get to talk and then so, and someone else is eliminated. Now we're down to two people. And uh, uh, now the, the person who's looking for the date goes off stage comes back off they're perfectly naked there's nothing salacious about it all the bodies are it's a very body positive show you see big bodies small bodies uh, uh trans bodies uh, uh cis bodies uh, uh white bodies black bodies it's all all varieties nothing uh, uh uh salacious about it nothing erotic there's nothing erotic about it interspersed between segments is solid sex education. Wow. Solid sex education. Uh, the fact that we in this country, we look at a nude body and we sexualize it. Right. That we somehow put morality placed on it. And, and when there is none that we shun, we, 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 uh, uh, think that if we talk about sex to our children, that they're going to uh, want to have sex when that just simply isn't the case. The other piece, of course, perhaps along that line, is that in our society, we have this, this myth that uh, sex is baked into our DNA and how could you do it wrong? Uh, mm -hmm. Therefore, why do you need to learn anything about it? Um, and that's why, you know, uh, I don't know if it was on air or, or before asking clients, when's the last time you read a, uh, a, a nonfiction book on sexuality? The most common answer is never. I've never right. read anything. That my book may be the very first book that they read about sexuality. And there are some excellent, excellent, excellent books out there by my colleagues, by sexologists, uh, uh, who are just so uh, uh, adamant about sex education. And, and I, I think you know, when we take the time to invest in our own sexual development, mm -hmm. uh, then we uh, expect more from our sexual partners. Ooh, right? That's interesting. Yes. So uh, if, for example, uh, uh, you like oral sex, and for you, that's a reliable means of having an orgasm, then you're going to want to give your partner feedback about pressure, uh, uh, speed, all, of, all whatever is mm -hmm. going to be helpful. And you're going to want a partner who wants the feedback. The feedback. <laughs> yeah, that's important. And, and you wouldn't tolerate being with someone who scoffed at it, who got their, you know, had their egos bruised about it, you would only want a partner who would 
want to be with someone who was going to give them feedback. Fascinating. And finally, I'll add this. You know, I have two sons. Uh, they're teenagers. And, you know, it's, it's, uh, uh, they seem remarkably disinterested in sex. I don't know. They, they tell people, though, that they get a lot of street cred telling their friends that their dad's a sex therapist. Uh, oh, that's so funny. But, but they're, you know, they seem, they seem just totally uninterested. Um, but I still have conversations about sex and sexuality with them, not just how their bodies work, but also uh, uh, I've yet to have any inclination as to uh, their own sexual orientation. But I think boys in particular benefit from understanding how uh, uh, female bodies work. Mm-hmm. And so, you know, you would think I, you know, I have no reason, uh, uh, I shouldn't say no reason, but, uh, you know, to have two boys, I still talk to them about immenses, right? Because that's an important part of the conversation, right? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And so uh, multifactorial to your question, it's just, a, there's, a, I think, a lot of different influences there, but uh, ultimately, it's our responsibility as sexual beings to be updating our sexual knowledge to reflect where we are in our current life cycle. Mm, that's such powerful information. And I think as our, as a society, we're aging and living a lot longer. And as we're aging, um, well, I'm in Florida and, you know, the older population is still interested in wanting to have quality, intimate relationships and connections, Yes, you know, which is unpopular for youthful ears. And, you know, I think a lot of uh, folks in our youth, we think, oh, once you hit 40, you don't have sex anymore or something, you know, <laughs> but but yeah, I mean, that's important to continue to educate ourselves because at 70, what that's going to look like is going to be dramatically different than 40, than 20, um, and all of the numbers in between. You're so spot on. And and what a, a, a sex therapist can do or, or what the service that they can offer is that they're, we're much more likely to be educated on things like the impact of medications on sexual functioning, right? Oh, yeah. So, you know, there's a, a, a as, as people age, there they may be on medications that reduce um, uh, uh, or increase vaginal dryness, for example, or mm-hmm. that they may decrease um, desire or make it more difficult to have an orgasm or you know, they may have had a prostatectomy <clears throat> and need resources about how to, what, what are the options to have an erection for penetration. Mm-hmm. And so when you're aware of these services uh, or, or these resources, you can really help someone. And, and in a relatively short amount of time, to give you an example, I had a client, he was in his seventies uh, and he, um, uh, uh, was a, 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 a widow, a widower, uh, and had, was married over 50 years and uh, uh, had just gotten remarried to a younger woman in her 60s. And uh, uh, he, he had a prostatectomy at, at some point and couldn't get an erection. Mm-hmm. But he wanted to be able to have sex on his wedding night, mm-hmm. right? And uh, so he was seeing me and asking me about uh, uh, the options. And as a non-medical professional, I can't provide uh, uh, Trimex, which is a a penile injection or or, uh, these these, uh, regular ED medications Mm -hmm. um, that we often hear about. Uh, But I could talk to him about a penile pump, for example. Um, I said, there is one other solution that will guarantee that you can have penetrative sex on your wedding night. And he's, his eyes got real you know, curious and he goes, what is that? And I said, you could wear a strap on. 
and he just got really like lit up by this. He says, tell me more. And so <laughs> I, I got my computer, we sat next to each other and I shared with him these, you know, different models that he could wear. And he said, I think I found what I needed. And we're only 20 minutes into the session. And, mm. and he goes, this is the answer that I, he, all he wanted, what was important to him was that he could have a pleasurable experience with his wife on his, on their wedding night, right? Knowing mm -hmm. that he has this limitation, it, it wasn't essential for him that the erection be his own, mm -hmm. but that he wanted some kind of a, a pleasurable experience with his partner and, and having it as a guarantee was uh, the answer he was looking for. So that to me, that is the joy of being a sex therapist where I can give this kind of resources to them and that the, uh, uh, you know, they can have a, a, a more meaningful life. I love that. And in one meeting, one meeting, one and one done. And done. <laughs> fabulous. Yeah. Uh, so for folks that want a copy of making naughty with nice, making nice with naughty, yeah, <laughs> flipping the words around, making nice with naughty, where can they find it? They can find it at any uh, bookstore, you know, Amazon, uh, Barnes and Noble, uh, uh, what have you. You can you can also uh, listen to the audio version that I recorded, uh, and that's through Audible, um, Spotify. Nice. Uh, ever and all, all different venues. Awesome. Uh, yeah. And if people want to find out more about you, the services that you offer, which you offer a very diverse array of services from clinical work to supervising other folks that really want to specialize in these niches to the forensic sexology work that you do, you, you do a lot of different things. Where can people find you? They can visit me at makingnicewithnaughty.com. Easy. Easy. <laughs> awesome. Well, I appreciate you making the time today, uh, Dr. Murray. And thank you so much for sharing all of your wisdom with us. You are so welcome. And you're such a wonderful host. Thank you for uh, having uh, the opportunity with you. Oh, well, thank you. I appreciate that. <laughs> I'm going to run the outro. Thanks for listening to this episode of The Creative Psychotherapist. If you like what you heard, please rate, review, and subscribe wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. For show notes, downloads, and additional resources, head over to the website at www.creativeclinicianscorner.com.